Heavenly Father, thank you again for our time this morning, opportunity once again to worship you through the hearing of your word, through the study of it together. Lord, we th- we're thankful that we can do that with freedom. We're thankful that you have allowed us to live here in this moment, in this time, even in this really dark land where we can freely currently open your word and study together. Lord, help us never take that for granted. And the special reality of being together as a corporate body whereby you superintend our time here together and we receive from you. So Lord, open our minds to understand, give us wisdom, and help us to think of all the ways that we can put into practice what you would teach us. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we find ourselves this morning in Romans chapter 9. We had an overview of 9, 10, and 11 over the last last time I was here. And I want to begin our time this morning reading from verse 1 down through verse 13 just for context. And then uh, we're going to focus our attention this morning just on verses 1 to 5. Follow along as I read these verses for us. The Apostle Paul, once again, speaking to those in Rome... I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service and the promises whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God-blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is a a word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there, are, there also was Rebekah, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For through, though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose, according to his choice, might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger." Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. It seems to me rather ironic as you look at this passage, and some might even say that it's somewhat strange that the Apostle Paul would be saying the things that he is saying here in Romans chapter 9, especially concerning the people of Israel, in light of what he just proclaimed in the end of chapter 8. Remember his final words in chapter 8, verse 38 and 39, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a pretty astounding statement. And while it is obvious that Paul was convinced of the absolute and rightful sovereignty and power of God in salvation for those whom he has chosen to save, not all of those to whom this letter was first read, were convinced of that reality. Just maybe, just maybe there are some of 
us here this morning. Some of us who are remembering all that we have learned already through our study of the book of Romans, all the way beginning from chapter 1. And we have heard about the great wonder of God saving the ungodly, chapter 5 says. That God died for the ungodly. And that he, those whom he saves, those whom he died for, he ensures that they will never lose their salvation. That their faith is absolutely secure because they are held in Christ. That he is the preserving power for his children. And for their continued perseverance, he is the power. Why? Because God never fails at accomplishing what he sets out to do. God cannot be thwarted. God is all-powerful. There is nothing more powerful than him. Jesus even said in John's gospel that no one can snatch them from the Father's hand. So it's a very simple principle. God is absolutely sovereign and infinitely powerful to accomplish all that he has said. It's a very simple principle, a very simple doctrine. If God is not all-powerful, if he is not all-sovereign, then he is not God. There is something else that is more powerful, something else that is more sovereign than Him, and therefore we must seek out and worship that. But we know there is only one God, and He is absolutely sovereign and infinitely powerful. And we've also heard about the reality of that no person, no person in and of themselves, no person according to their own very nature desires to follow after God. No one seeks God, Romans 3, verse 10, which is a quote from the Old Testament. No one seeks after God unless God chooses them, unless they are one of the elect of God, they will never come to salvation. You also notice, as you have read through your own Bible, particularly in the New Testament, You certainly have noticed that writers of the New Testament primarily address their letters to those who are the chosen. They don't address them to generally the population in general. The the letters of the New Testament in general, the, the New Testament epistles are written to the chosen. In other words, they write to the elect of God. And so you know that this is a doctrine taught in the Bible. But you struggle with it. It's hard. Because it seems to be in conflict with the responsibility of man to believe in God. How can man be required to believe when he is spiritually unable to believe without God choosing him? And in fact, how does all of that sync with the reality of Israel, especially in the Old Testament? They are the chosen of God, are they not? So why then aren't they saved? Why then hasn't every Jew been saved? And if you say that all Israel by heritage will not be saved, then isn't the doctrine of election actually not true? Or God is not actually powerful enough to fulfill what he set out to do. Maybe this morning those or some of those thoughts are yours. Maybe you're here this morning, you've thought those things. No one's ever really set out to try to answer those things or you've never really had a clear answer to those things. Many have been there and many are there in their own theological understanding. And many to whom Paul is writing were there in their own minds. Paul has anticipated this perplexity. Paul has anticipated it from the very beginning of the Gospel of Romans. He has anticipated, you say that nothing can thwart God's purposes, you say that nothing can get in the way of it, that He will complete it, and that's an absolute fact because He is infinitely powerful to do so. But if that is true, then it's logically problematic. From our thinking, it seems to be logically problematic. It has a serious problem because the fact is that the majority of the Jews are not Christian at all. 
Now, this is not an anti-Semitic message that I'm preaching here today. This is just reality. Most believe that God is, but they do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. You cannot have salvation without believing Jesus Christ is your Savior, no matter what you believe about God. And so most Jews are not Christian at all. In fact, isn't it true, they would say, that most true believers throughout history have been non-Jews? That would be true. Most Christians, most people who believe in Jesus Christ are non-Jews. You go to an Orthodox Jew today and try to tell them about Jesus Christ, they ignore the New Testament altogether. They don't want to hear about Jesus. In fact, I sat in Jerusalem in the city council chambers with one of the people who was the director of religious uh, education over the entire country of of Israel and asked him, what do you believe about Jesus? Which I thought was going to be a major international incident, if I ask that. And he said, we, we believe Jesus was a good man. He was a prophet. But we do not, and he was specific about that, we do not believe he rose from the dead. That was in the year 2000. We're, we're only 19 years from that statement. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. So where is the purpose of God with the Jews? Where is his unchangeableness in that? Where is it? I mean, after all, God certainly promised to the Jews. I mean, we read the Old Testament. It's true. God made promises to the Jews. It is clearly all over the Old Testament, and yet it seems that it didn't or hasn't happened with them. You must be anti-Jew, Paul. I mean, that's really what they're saying about Paul, that Paul was really an anti-Semite. Paul, you're against the Jews. So this is what Paul anticipates the people are thinking. And it needs to be addressed. And so Paul begins with a very serious statement in chapter 9. Notice what he says. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. I say that this is a serious statement because it is, but also because I believe there's instruction right here in this statement for us. You might say, well, that doesn't come across as a very serious statement to me. And that may be true, but that's because we are in the habit of saying things with having very little weight attached to what we say. That's the kind of world we live in. In our modern day, a person and their words don't really mean a whole lot. We live with a world where words are said and they don't really mean anything. You and I are bombarded each and every day with statements by people in important positions that carry no actual weight or validity in the words at all. Things are said and yet never carried out. Promises are made, rarely kept. Words are spoken with double and secretive meaning. We see it all the time in our courtrooms every day. People place their hand on the Bible. They swear on the Bible to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And then they go about speaking lies. Why? Because that's mankind in general. Mankind in general could care less about God. It's just a formality. It's just a procedure. It's just what they have to do in order to stand there. They could care less whether God is listening to them or not. They could care less about their fellow man. The unsaved person only thinks of themselves and what will be to their advantage. And yet... Here is the Apostle Paul, here is the Word of God speaking concerning one of the greatest doctrines that you and I could ever hear about. And in essence, he is saying, I speak these words to you, I speak what I'm saying to you all the way from the beginning and what I will say after these very words, I speak them to you 
realizing that I am in the presence of Christ. Realizing that I am in the presence of God. And not only that, I am speaking them to you as a Christian. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us to speak truth to one another. To not let any unwholesome words come out of our mouth except that which would build up one another. We are to speak because we are Christian. Because we are in the presence of Christ. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm speaking as a person who is in Christ because of Christ and therefore I will not speak carelessly or foolishly or meaninglessly. I am speaking as one who takes seriously my place before Christ. That's what Paul's saying. Paul is saying these things with utter seriousness. Utter seriousness. For him, it is as if Christ is standing right by his side. For Paul, it is as if he is right there in the presence of Christ. And there is a lesson in that for us to practice, isn't there? There is a lesson just in that. Just as we take one bounce on the diving board to dive into this swimming pool. There's a lesson right there for that. Listen, if your Christianity is to have an effect upon what we say and how we go about saying it, it doesn't matter if we are speaking to another Christian or to an unbeliever. If our Christianity is to have an effect, then speak as if Christ is right by your side. Paul has done this all throughout. Everywhere he went, the things he wrote, he spoke in such a way. In fact, go all the way back just for a moment. I want to take us through a few passages. Romans chapter 1, verse 9. Romans chapter 1, verse 9. Paul says, For God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching of the gospel of His Son, is witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers. Paul's saying the same thing. God is as if God's standing right by me. When I'm telling you I'm praying for you, you can take it to the bank. God is my witness that I'm doing that. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And this is just to show you how serious Paul is about this and how serious we ought to be about this. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. I call God. It's Paul's thinking of himself as if he's in the courtroom and he says, Call your next witness. And Paul says, I call the creator of the universe to the stand. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 31. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. (laughs) I call God the Father as my witness. I call God the Son as my witness. This is before you in every kind of way. God is my witness of what I'm telling you. Chapter 12, verse 19. All this time you have been thinking that we were defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. Galatians, chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, verse 20. Now, in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I'm not lying. Paul knew that people were going to wonder, Ah, Paul, you know, he was a Jew. I can't believe he's saying the things he's saying. I can't believe he's speaking so much against what the Jews believe. Paul says, I'm standing before God when I say this. 
Philippians chapter 1, verse 8. You can't get much clearer than this. For God is my witness. I hear people all the time, I swear on my mother's grave. What's that got to do with it? Can the dirt and grass actually help you do anything? It's meaningless. God is my witness. How I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. It goes on. 1 Thessalonians 2.5. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Paul is saying the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. This is serious stuff, he's saying. Go back to Romans now. What we say, beloved, what we tell people, what we speak, what we teach is very serious stuff. In fact, it is eternal life and death stuff. And so Paul says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying to you about the gospel. I'm not lying to you about what I have said, and I'm not lying to you about what I am going to say. And then, and then he makes it even stronger. He makes it even stronger. If that wasn't strong enough, Paul makes it even stronger by saying, notice, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. My conscience bearing witness in the Holy Spirit. Doesn't it seem a bit strange that Paul would say this phrase at all, that, that, that wording at all? I mean, isn't it enough for someone to say that they are not lying? I'm not lying. Isn't that enough? Isn't it enough that someone say, I'm telling you the truth? That should be enough. should be enough for those who are hearing. But the important fact that we need to remember is how important it is to have a clear conscience before God. Before God. In other words, to say it in the words of the Apostle Paul, it's not only that I say these things with all honesty before you. It's not only that there is no lie anywhere in the words that I'm telling you. But what is most important in my mind is that my conscience is clear in its witness before God in what I say. Why does Paul say that? Why is that so important? Listen, beloved, because it's important because the conscience, your conscience, my conscience, we all have it. The conscience is a God-given instrument within us that operates, get this, it operates independently of us. The conscience is a God-given instrument within us that operates independently of us. What do I mean by that? I mean that we may say something. We may open our mouth and speak something. But that doesn't mean that our conscience agrees with what we're speaking, with what we're saying. Why? Because the conscience is an inward monitor. It's an inward light. It's, a, it's that yellow light that oftentimes we speed up and try to get through really fast. It's that inward monitor. It's, it's placed there by God and you cannot, listen, you cannot manipulate your conscience. You can't manipulate your conscience. You can go against your conscience. You can say, I'm not doing that. My conscience is ringing. The light is flashing, and I'll go against it. I'll I'll hit the gas pedal and speed through, hoping there's no police officer there so I can get a ticket. But you cannot manipulate your conscience. You can sear your conscience. You can ignore your conscience. But you cannot manipulate your conscience. It is an independent witness. It is either for you or against you, depending, now get this, depending upon the information that you give your conscience. Therefore, 
We have to inform our conscience with truth. Paul's saying, my conscience bears witness to the truth of what I'm saying to you. It is bearing witness in the Holy Spirit or according to the Holy Spirit. This is all over the Scriptures, this idea of conscience and have a clear conscience. And I'm going to list some Scriptures for us and read a few of them, but I'm going to go rather quickly so you can just write these down and then look them up later. First Samuel chapter 2 or chapter 24, verse 5. It came about afterward, this is what the verse says, and I'll give you the context of how it plays out. It came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him you say, what was he doing in 1 Samuel 24? David was hidden in the caves of En Gedi, and Saul was pursuing David and wanted to kill him. And he came into the cave to, to go to the restroom. Saul did. And the men of David who were with David said, oh, the Lord has delivered him into your hand. Go and kill him now while he's relieving himself. And David sneaks up and cuts a piece of his robe off. And it came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. David's conscience wasn't clear because David was coming against, as you read further in that chapter, coming against the Lord's anointed. And David said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And all through Saul's life, and even Saul was pursuing David, even after that, time and time again, David would not come against Saul. He would not come against the Lord's anointed, and even those who did, David put to death because they did that. Even though it was a a benefit to David. His conscience wasn't clear. Acts chapter 23, verse 1, Paul looking intently at the council. Paul's under arrest. He's heading to Rome. He's, He's in Rome. He's at the council, and he says, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience, not before men, not saying my conscience is clear before men. No, he's not saying that. He says, I've lived with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. I've said to our men, our leadership team, it really doesn't matter to me what people think of me. And that's kind of a shocking statement. I say it that way to be shocking. I care what people think of me. But I don't care what people think of me. What I care about is what God thinks of me. Paul says, I have a good conscience before God. And then in chapter 24 of Acts, he says, In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and men. This is huge in the Apostle Paul's life. The idea of a clear conscience. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 7 and following, however, not all men have this knowledge. He's talking to the Corinthians about the reality of meat sacrificed to idols. When we were studying 1 Corinthians, we went through that in detail. And he's saying some, some people don't have the knowledge that the food sacrificed to idols is meaningless. It's not, it's not defiled because it was sacrificed to idols. The idol is nothing. It's not a god. So it doesn't do anything to the food. But not all men have this knowledge. But some being accustomed to the idol until now. In other words, they were trained in idolatry, trained in the temples of idol worship, and then they got saved out of it. But, but when you get saved, all the vestiges of your old life don't immediately just go away. He's saying some have that training on their conscience, and they eat food as if it was sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Their conscience is weak. Why? Because of what's on it. The conscience isn't being manipulated. It's still screaming from the information it has. But what's on it isn't right information. And so Paul exhorts the Corinthians to act in love with your Christian freedom for the sake of the conscience of the weaker brother. You need to act in love. Because... If you don't, you're sinning against your brother and you're wounding their conscience when it's weak. And in doing so, you sin against Christ 
You say, well, I have the freedom to do it. What's the big deal? I'm not sinning against... No, you're sinning against them, which is a sin against Christ, because God says, love your brother. Think more highly of them. In other words, forego your freedom for the sake of their weakness. First Corinthians 10, he talks about the same thing. One of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that's set before you without asking questions. But if anyone says to you, this meat sacrificed to idols, then don't eat it. Why? For the sake of the one who informed you. Obviously, they're saying that because they have their conscience is bothering them. Don't eat it because their conscience is bothering them. Not your own conscience, he says in uh, 1 Corinthians 10.29. I don't mean your own conscience, but the other man's. Remember when we were studying that, I, I said, we are our brother's keeper. We are our brother's keeper. 2 Corinthians 1, 2 Corinthians 4, speak of the conscience there. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul tells Timothy, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So farther down in verse 19 of 1 Timothy 1, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and they've suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Why? They kept going against their conscience and their conscience is seared and now they don't even believe anymore. 2 Timothy chapter 1, Titus 1, Hebrews chapter 9. Paul even talks about the sacrifices made. According, both gifts and sacrifices are offered. Talking about in the temple, they're offered. But they can't perfect the conscience. They can't make the conscience clear. Works of righteousness do nothing to clear your conscience. And he says in chapter 9, verse 14 of Hebrews, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without the blemish of God, cleanse your conscience from dead works? To serve a living God. That's the only thing to clear your conscience. First Peter chapter two, first Peter chapter three, all of these places in the scripture deal with the idea of conscience. So here is a lesson for us from observing the Apostle Paul. Always listen to your conscience. Now get this. Always don't don't go against your conscience. Always listen to your conscience, right? The weak conscience is still a conscience and it's and it, it may be weak and needs to be informed, but it's helping. Always listen to your conscience, but ensure that your conscience is informed with the truth. Listen to your conscience, but ensure your conscience is informed with the truth. People say all the time, let your conscience be your guide. That's true. But there's only some truth in that. Let your conscience be your guide. You don't want to violate your conscience. That's dangerous. To do so, in fact, as a Christian is sin. That's why Paul says here, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. That tells us that even though the conscience is an independent witness, even though the conscience can't be manipulated, we, and we need to listen to our conscience, and we must listen to our conscience, we have to remember that the conscience is not infallible. Your conscience is not infallible. In other words, you're to listen to your conscience, but you need to measure your conscience by what is objectively and rightly true from the Word of God. Sometimes your conscience is misinformed. Sometimes you've, you've followed your conscience for years and, and, and what's on your conscience is bad information. And you've done the right thing by listening to your conscience, but, but you're doing the wrong thing because it goes against the Word of God. You need to inform your conscience with the truth, with the Word of God. In other words, our conscience is part of our fallenness. It's part of our fallenness, and therefore it needs to be trained. Our conscience needs to be trained by truth. Our conscience is going to lead us in the direction of the information that it has been given. That was the problem with the Corinthian church, wasn't it? Their conscience was informed, leading them in a direction. Some had consciences that were informed by the pagan religions that they were involved in before they got saved. So when, it, when they became believers, 
all of that bad information needed to be needed to be reprogrammed with right information. So their conscience was wrongly informed about meat being sacrificed to idols. But others had consciences that had been trained in the truth. They had no issue eating meat sacrificed to idols. So the meat wasn't the issue. The issue was informing the conscience. The truth of God or something else masquerading as the truth. That's the issue. What is your conscience being informed by? Is it being informed by the truth of God or something masquerading as truth? Our conscience needs to be trained in the truth of Scripture. Rightly divided, folks. Rightly divided. We hit this all the time in our church. You must know what the Bible means by what it says. Not just what it says. What does it mean by what it says? And not what it says to me. What it says. What God means by what He says. That's what He means. And that's what He means to you. He doesn't mean one thing to you and another thing to somebody else. Maybe the implications and how it outworks in your life could be different. But what God means is what God means. That needs to inform our conscience. Rightly divided truth. And when our conscience is bound to the truth rightly divided, it is being informed, get this, in the Holy Spirit. It is being informed, as Paul says here, in the Holy Spirit. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Paul is simply saying, my conscience, my life, what I'm doing is, is being informed and bound and, and guarded by and the bells go off when I don't do what God's Word says. That's what he's saying. My conscience is informed with the truth. So always listen to your conscience, but make sure that it's been informed by the truth, rightly divided. And so that's what Paul is saying here. Not only am I speaking truth, not only am I not lying, but my conscience is clear about this issue. In fact, this is what the Old Testament Scriptures teach about salvation. This is what the Old Testament Scriptures teach. And that's the great place for us to be in our Christian lives when we have our conscience clear. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about us. It matters what God thinks. Man may doubt what we're saying. Men and women and children and teachers and neighbors and, and, and people we, we interact with may doubt what we are saying, but to know that you can stand before God and be uncondemned about what you are saying in His sight, that's a safe place to be. That's a safe place to be. doesn't matter what people think. And so let's ensure that when we speak, we speak with our conscience bound to the truth, rightly divided. And so we notice... So we notice, this is on Paul's heart. And we notice that when Paul says these things, he's saying these things because he is deeply, deeply concerned for his own countrymen. And we know that that is what's on his heart. That's who he's speaking about because he tells us in verses 3 through 5. And he makes an astounding statement in verse 3. And then he describes the Jews with nine distinctive phrases in nine distinct ways. Look at what he says. I'll begin in verse 2. I, here, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Stop right there for a second. Paul, you're an anti-Semite. Paul, you hate the Jews. You can't like the Jews. Are you kidding me? You're saying that the Jews can't be saved the way they're doing it. They can't be saved the way they're doing it, Paul's saying, but I don't hate the Jews. In fact, my conscience is clear before God. I'm telling the truth. I have this great and unceasing grief in my heart for them. I could wish that I myself were accursed, 
separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And then he lists these nine distinctive ways in which he describes them. Listen, Paul is so sorrowful concerning his own countrymen that he says, if it was even possible to wish that I might be accursed by God, to save some of them, okay. Paul's not saying, I wish I was accursed. He's not saying that. that's how some read it. Sometimes that's how our English comes across. But that's not what he's saying here in the grammar. This is a, a specific way and word and in, in, in how it's written that Paul is saying, if I could even wish that I was accursed. I, I know I can't wish that. I know even thinking like that, even wishing that I might be accursed would not only, it's impossible because that would mean I could lose my salvation. And I just said, God accomplishes what He does. And so I know it's impossible. I I can't even really realistically wish that. And it would cheapen my salvation even if we could do that. Paul's saying, listen, if if it was even possible to wish, I would, but I can't. If it was even possible. So Paul isn't asking for God to take his salvation away. He knows that can never happen. What Paul is trying to get across is that there is no way he is not thinking about the Jews. There's no way he could ever rightfully be accused that his heart is not for the Jews. Or that he has in some way forgotten the Old Testament promises. In fact, it's just the opposite of that. He is so saddened by their rejection of the Messiah that he feels it to the very core of his being. This is the issue with Paul. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a crushing reality to think about, isn't it? You say, why? Because... When Paul says that in verse 2 and verse 3, that's his heart for the lost. That's his heart for the lost. I mean, sometimes we, we get really surprised, especially if we're the only Christian in our family. We get surprised that God would save us. We go, I, I just can't believe that God would save me. And it stops right there at our amazement about how God has chosen us even though he hasn't chosen our family. And yet it sometimes doesn't go the next step. And this is where Paul's heart is. Paul's is at the next step. Paul's heart is for the lost. Paul says, man, I I feel it to my very core for them. I wonder this morning, is that your heart for the lost? That ought to be our heart for the lost. We ought to feel it in a visceral way when someone doesn't know Jesus Christ. It ought to to get us into the very core of our very selves. We ought to be grieving over the lost. And the fact of the matter is, if we be honest, we rarely do, right? We rarely do. You know how we know that? Because we're not running to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our friends even sometimes to our kids, to tell them about Christ. If we understood and truly grabbed on to the reality and the potential of their destiny, we would tell them of Christ. Doesn't matter what they think of us, doesn't matter, doesn't matter what the relationship's going to be, we would tell them of Jesus Christ. And that is Paul's concern here in verse 3. My brethren... My kinsmen according to the flesh. I have such a visceral reality in my heart concerning them. I want them to know Christ. If I could even wish that I'd be separated, I'd do that. But there's no way for me to even wish that. There's no way for me to even think like that. But I want my brethren. Notice he says, my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And he describes them in nine distinct ways. We'll just look through these quickly. He says, verse 4, who are Israelites? Who are Israelites? Seems kind of odd for Paul to describe them that way. Who are Israelites? 
You say, why is it odd? Because from the beginning of the book of Romans, he has called them Jews. Called them Jews. Why now Israelites? Well, I think it's because, remember, Paul is linking the Old Testament with the gospel. The name Israel harkens back all the way to the covenants, all the way to the covenant promise that was made by God, the reiterating of the Abrahamic covenant to Isaac and to Jacob, whereby Jacob is called what? Israel. This harkens back to the covenants. God changed Jacob's name to Israel to show that he had chosen them as his covenant people. There was no other nation in that category. No other nation like that. There hasn't been, there never will be. And it is through that particular people that God was going to bring his great work to bless the world and to bring salvation to his chosen people. And every time the covenant is reinstated or or restated, I should say, from Abraham where God said, I will bless nations through you. I won't just bless a nation. I will bless the nations through you, the world. And then you get to Jacob and the reiteration of that same promise. And then you go through Moses and the reiteration of the land. And I'll show you the promised land, what we might call, some might call the Mosaic Covenant, which God didn't formally make a covenant there, but reinstated or reestablished and restated the covenant of the land and the boundaries of the land through Moses that you might read as the Palestinian covenant. And then you have the Davidic covenant whereby there would be a king forever. Same promise, different aspect. You have the blessing, you have the land, and you have the king. All reinstated throughout the Old Testament. Paul is hearkening back to that. They are Israelites. Israelites. They're this particular nation that God is going to bless. And through their blessing would come the blessing to the world. And so that's the first distinction. Paul says, they're my kinsmen, my brethren, according to flesh, the Israelites. And then he says, to whom belongs the adoption as sons? To whom belongs the adoption as sons? Now, don't equate adoption or adoption there with spiritual adoption that's part of salvation. Don't equate that there. Paul is is defining this group of people, this national reality, this Israel. We're not talking about the 1948-49 Israel as a nation that we see now. We're talking about all those who were of Israel. So this is an adoption in a spiritual sense. What Paul is referring to here is he's simply saying that like all adoption, whereby adoption is someone who, who places a love upon someone who didn't belong to them, didn't belong to their family, and they give this special love to them. God placed his love upon Israel so that they were his chosen people through whom the Messiah would come. That's what Paul's saying here, the adoption as sons in that sense. The special love of God upon them through which the Messiah would come. He's not saying that they're spiritual children. We will, in fact, hear him say that in verse 6 and 7, but it's not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. So Paul is starting to par down and and close in and describe exactly who it is that God chose. But they were adopted in the physical sense as a whole. And so they had the privileged distinction of having God as the one who adopted them. And then he says, thirdly, the glory. You notice that? And the glory. You notice he doesn't say, glory in some generic way. They had glory as if it was their glory or if it was some kind of generic glory. He says they had the glory. This distinguished them. This was a distinction of them. They are the kinsmen according to the flesh 
who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, and the glory. The glory means the presence of God among them. The presence of God among them, the cloud by day and the fire by night as God led them through Israel and then God dwelt in the tabernacle. That was the manifestation of the glory of God's presence. They were privileged. Privileged to have God with them physically. Some people say, boy, I would believe if God just showed up in the room right now. No, you wouldn't. You would not. Christ came to the earth and they rejected Him. You would reject Him if God didn't choose you. God was with Israel for years and years and years and years. And they rejected Him. They had the glory. And then fourth, He says, and the covenants. And the covenants. They had the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant. The Davidic covenant, all reiterating the the aspects of the Abrahamic covenant, which is the overarching umbrella covenant of God with Israel, all clarifying God's choice, all reiterating his unilateral promise to them. In other words, it was promise made that God would fulfill regardless. And he says, fifth, and the giving of the law, giving of the law. If they obeyed God, God would bless. If they disobeyed God, God would curse. You see that all through the Old Testament. When Israel obeyed, God was with them and God was saving them and God was causing the nations about them to to not overtake them. And when they disobeyed, God allowed punishment to come. And then on top of that, they were given the way that God was to be worshipped. Notice he says, and the service. Some of your Bibles have the word temple there, maybe in italics, and the temple service in the original language is just the service. It's t- he's talking about the temple service, but really the idea is how God is to be worshipped. They were given and prescribed the way in which God was to be approached. How you were to go and worship God. How you would deal with God. They were given the way that God was to desired His people to worship Him. And that means, beloved, that out of grace and out of mercy, God gave strict instructions for how He was to be worshipped. You cannot just simply go to God willy-nilly. You cannot say, well, after all, God is a gracious God. We just do whatever we want to do. No. God requires worship a certain way. There's freedom within its prescription, even more freedom today than Israel had then. But it isn't just do whatever you want. You can't come barking in the aisles and say you're in the Holy Spirit. You couldn't treat God in a way that it was unprescribed. And if you did, it was sin. And there was immediate consequences for it. In fact, you read the Old Testament, you read about King Saul. Saul found out clearly what it meant to not worship God as God prescribed. When, 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 when there was a sacrifice to be made, it had to be the priest that made that. And Samuel was to be making that in the time of Saul. And Saul wanted Samuel to come. And Samuel wasn't coming at, at Saul's prescribed pace. And so Saul takes it upon himself. He assumes the role. Samuel comes along and tells him what God is saying. Samuel says to him, God takes your kingdom away, Saul. You've lost a kingdom because of your foolishness that very day. Listen, God is to be worshipped as he prescribes. God's to be worshipped as he prescribes. He will give his glory to no one else. We can't simply do whatever we want. We have to worship him, as John 4 says, in spirit and in truth. And what distinguished Israel from the rest of the nations around them was that they were given the service. How to worship God. They knew what God required. And then they were given, number seven, all the promises. All that God had promised if they would obey Him. 
these promises would be yours. And they had an example of the faith of the fathers and the faith of Abraham, the faith of Isaac, the faith of Jacob. As it says here, number eight, whose are the fathers? Israel had the prom. They were they were Israelites. They they had that that meant the the covenants. The the it would hearken back to who they were by way of distinction. The adoption of sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service, and the promises, and the fathers. I mean, Paul just keeps stacking it on. Here's another thing about them. 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 And most of all, they had from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is overall God, blessed forever. They had all of those things, and they had the Messiah. Through them came the Messiah, who is over all things, and most importantly, he is God, who is blessed forever. What a privilege. What a distinction among all the other nations. And yet, they reject it. Why? Well, verse 6 says, not all Israel is Israel. We'll get into that next time, but they reject it. All of this, all of this, this week caused me to wonder. Why is there some even here today who are rejecting Christ? I mean, Israel had all kinds of privileges. And God has just stacked it on even more and more and more and more and more. We are all such a privileged people. We too have seen God. We too have seen God. We see, look outside and you see the creation. You see God's invisible attributes clearly on display. And you look in the scriptures and you see God on display. And you go to the New Testament and you see God in the flesh on display. We've seen God. We have seen His handiwork and all that He's made. We have seen Him through His Word. And some of you kids who have grown up in Christian homes have heard about Him day in and day out over and over and over and over and over again. We know who Christ is. We know He's the living Word. So why are some rejecting? I'll tell you why they're rejecting. Because of the only thing that can separate people from the love of God. What is it? It's the only thing not listed at the end of chapter 8, verse 38 and 39. You know what that is? Unbelief. Unbelief. This is the one thing that will keep you from Christ. Unbelief. That's why the Jews rejected Christ. Jesus said, you will die in your sins because you do not believe. Unbelief. Oh, beloved, listen. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for your family. Pray for your children. Pray for belief. Pray that God would grant them belief. Pray that God would grant belief to those who currently hate him. They hate him. Have that sorrow deep in your soul like it was in the Apostle Paul. And know this, God has not failed because some reject. His plan and his purpose is completely secure. And we'll see that played out as we look forward next time. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we're grateful 
Grateful that we would have the privilege of even understanding a small piece of what you're telling us here. That we would be your people. That you would see fit to shine your grace upon us and cause us to come to you. To give us faith. To not allow us to remain in unbelief that we might have life. Lord, we know your plan is perfect. Help us as we walk through this very difficult at time text to understand. Help us to, to gain an understanding of the wonder and majesty of your purposes. That we might just worship you. That we might just rejoice in who you are that you alone would be glorified through it all and in it all in how you save anybody because none of us deserve it. So thank you for these things this day. May you be honored in and through us, we pray. Give us the gospel to share that we might tell others with boldness and have a clear conscience before you. In our Savior's name, Jesus Christ, who is God forever, we pray. Amen.